where uh, there is uh, wrong route administration occurring, yeah. and it seems to be two to three minutes after administration of the sub um, intrathecal uh, tranexamic acid that the patients develop acute severe pain, yep. then uh, signs and symptoms of acute um, sympathetic nervous system activation, yep. followed often by seizures, and which can be accompanied accompanied further on by. Um, um, deterioration and death. Yeah. So. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me back. It's <laughs> nice to be back in the broom cupboard. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been a while, actually. Yeah. I think you've been in more than 50% of the podcast. So. Yeah, I haven't been here for a year, I suspect. No, I think it's uh, only been about six months. I can't remember okay. what last one we did with you. Um, so today we, we, we thought we'd um, go over something which I think is um, quite a serious topic for those of us that work in obstetric anesthesia or um, obstetrics, but it's probably relevant to other... Uh, areas of anesthesia as well. We thought, and um, we did briefly mention this when we did um, uh, talked about the highlights from the SIG meeting that our colleague Matt Rutledge organised in um, Sydney, and it was um, uh, our speaker there who spoke to us about tranexamic acid-associated neuraxial toxicity. We thought we'd do a bit of a deep dive into that and um, present um, what's going on in that area. So who was the... Uh, his uh, name speaker? was Dr. David Bishop. Yeah. He's an anaesthetist, I understand, in um, South Africa. Yeah. And his uh, presentation was um, very illuminating uh, and educational because it uh, brought to my attention the the risks of uh, inadvertent tranexamic acid administration into the spinal or intrathecal space, subarachnoid yep. space, the likely um, signs and symptoms and morbid outcome associated with it, the other aspect of his talk was his demonstration of uh, situations that yep. could easily lead to that drug error occurring. Yes. And uh, I remember at the SIG I was uh, sharing an, um, an elevator with other attendants who hadn't come to the SIG and hadn't seen that image presented of the um, anaesthetic trolley or yes. anaesthetic workspace of um, where a critical incident had occurred and they just couldn't understand how it happened. But Yeah. Um, what I, what, I, what I would say is the vials of tranexamic acid that are being used in those settings look so much like the vials of 0.5% heavy bupivacaine yeah. that uh, in, in, in the um, situation where those vials are close to each other, it would be so easy for the drug to be incorrectly administered. Yes, and he gave a very good description about how things work in these um, peripheral hospitals with um, what, you know, less resources than, than we normally have and how mm. basically all the drugs that you use during an anaesthetic or in theatre are all stored in one drawer. Yes. Uh, and you can easily see how people just put them in the wrong part of a drawer and they're sitting next to each other. Yes. Anyway, so I thought we'd go into a bit more of a deep dive. So this, uh, so big thanks to uh, David for raising this in our minds. I don't know, I can't remember if I'd heard of this. I think I had bro- heard of this before, but I thought it was like a, uh, before his talk, but I thought it was like, yeah, maybe there's like been one or two cases out there, but when he presented it, how... It's actually a big issue, and there's been many, many, well, quite a large number of deaths just in South Africa. Uh, suddenly realised that this is actually a really 
big issue and it's been flying under the radar maybe perhaps for a little while. Um, and trinic acid has become much more ubiquitous in the last 10, 15 years with big trials coming out and lots of people, um, you know, pra- praising its merits in uh, preventing hemorrhage, the treatment of hemorrhage or um, preventing blood loss and elective surgery. And it's just everywhere now in theatre. And in, um, um, so I think it's sort of multiple things have led to this um, increase in incidence of this um, horrific complication. Yes. So and it's probably uh, significantly underreported. Yep. Because the signs and symptoms of the condition can look like other lots conditions. of other things. Yep. In particular, in obstetric anaesthesia, it look like preeclampsia or eclampsia. That's ex- exactly right. So we're going to go a bit of a deep dive of, uh, about uh, how it presents and, and other things in a second. But let's go back. And so what we did is um, uh, a quick thank you to Sev, who those of you who have listened to the podcast recently would have heard his his contribution. He found a, uh, a couple of cases reports on epidural administration, or one case report on epidural administration as well. Um, but So just going back in the literature, the first good paper I've, that I found uh, that I think we're going to talk about, it's not the first one that was published on this, was um, published in Anesthesia in 2019. And uh, I think the lead author is Santosh Patel, and he's written a couple of papers now, so uh, thanks to Santosh for, for raising this as an issue, even though he's been pushing, uh, you know, trying to pushing to get this uh, into everyone's awareness. So he, they, he and the, his other authors put together a, um, a paper summarising um, the different um, 21 cases of spinal tranexamic acid administration that they'd come across. So that's already a lot more than yes. I thought, because <laughs> you think those are the ones that have been published. Mm. Uh, how many out there, in the, you know, especially if in the less well-resourced settings um, occur but just don't get into the literature. Um, and so they went through it in a, in a lot of detail, and it's really interesting. There's a few things. I'm not going to go through the whole paper in detail, but the, uh, they published like um, three or four pages of uh, tables which summarising all the case reports. You know. And you can see that the first one that was published was actually in 1988 in China. So this has been, around, this has been an issue, and it's been around for quite a long time. So a, a, it looks like an 18-year-old ma- male having an appendix under spinal was accidentally uh, given uh, 75 milligrams of intrathecal uh, tranexamic acid. And then uh, there are some other case reports. There's actually one from the Netherlands. There's uh, Taiwan, India, Korea, Iran. You can see this. You can see already that there's, you know, um, from all parts of the globe, including, you know, developed countries like like the Netherlands. And then um, without going through each case, there's also a couple from the US. So... It's happened sort of all over the globe, and um, this his paper goes up until 2018, and they had 21 cases. Um, so I thought maybe what we should do uh, is just just read out all, uh, the description of an actual case from one of these case reports. This one's more recent. Um, shall I read it out and then you make some comments? Yes. Because um, I've got it in front of me, you know. So this one is actually from the Philippines, and it was published in um, when was it published? Twenty twenty one. But this is just like the clinical features. So, so a fourteen year old, previously healthy male, scheduled for an elective uh, hernia repair at a primary hospital. So I'm not under spinal anesthesia. So I'm, I'm presuming that's like a sort of rural hospital. Um, had a lumbar puncture performed in the left lateral. And they used a 27-gauge quinky needle L34, and three mils of solution was injected intrathecally. 
three minutes after the patient uh, was placed in the supine position, so presumably you know, they did the injection and then lay the guy down, and three minutes after this he became restless and complained of severe pain in both lower limbs and his back. His pulse rate and blood pressure increased to 130 beats per minute, and his blood pressure was 160 over 100 respectively. They gave him some intravenous sedation with midazolam and propofol, along with some intravenous libidolol to try and control his heart rate and blood pressure. Um, a decision to secure his airway through intracranial intubation was made, and then he was then put on mechanical ventilation with 100% oxygen and sevoflurane. The surgery was postponed. Now they, at this stage, though, obviously it sounds like they weren't sure what was going on, because at this stage they then decided to do a rapid survey of the previously administered medications, and that's when they discovered that they had injected 300 milligrams of tranexamic acid accidentally into the spinal space instead of 15 milligrams of hyperbaric bupivacaine. So then the next bit is talks about what they did to try and treat it uh, and his, um, his subsequent course over time and the different drugs that they gave. I probably won't go into that because we're going to talk about treatments and things separately to try and keep this less confusing. So... <coughs> Yeah, so, so what is the, so the clinical course comments, Graham? The, and we'll talk about the mechanism. Well, well, the descriptions in the literature, in the descriptions from Dr Bishop's um, presentation were that this is a, a common situation that's being increasingly appreciated, yep. particularly in under-resourced settings in Africa, where there's a increased um, demand for administration of tranexamic acid by anaesthetists. Yep. Uh, where um, there is um, wrong route administration occurring yep. and it seems to be two to three minutes after administration of the sub um, intrathecal uh, tranexamic acid that the patients develop acute severe pain, yep. then uh, signs and symptoms of acute um, sympathetic nervous system activation yep. followed often by seizures and which can be accompanied, accompanied further on by... Um, um, deterioration and death. Yeah. So, but and so basically, and this can happen. Uh, a lot of these cases are obstetric, and that's why it's obviously something relevant to us. Mm. Uh, can, the obstetric uh, world, um, exactly. But there are older reports of intravenous, um, sorry, seizures associated with intravenous administration of tranexamic acid. Yes. And that was a concern, particularly in the cardiothoracic anesthesia area or cardiothoracic surgery where doses of as much of 100 milligrams per kilogram were recommended. Right. Um, that's a lot, isn't it? So that's a lot we're looking at, like 7 grams. Am I making that up? I know that... There, no, I think I'm not there used to be. Up. I know I, I have seen uh, mm. uh, that people did used to use 4 grams as a loading dose in, in uh, yes. some cardiothoracic centres. I don't know if they do now. And so were, that's a lot more than what you used to usually were, give. They were finding some patients when they were coming off sedation they were starting to have seizures. Yes. So I guess now's a good time to talk about the molecular mechanism of why this is happening and why tranexamic acid is bad in the yep. nervous system. So tranexamic acid is a lysine analogue. Yep. Its um, clinical effect is because it uh, looks like lysine and interferes with the tissue plasminogen activator plasminogen um, conversion to plasmin and then breakdown of um, fibrin yep. clot or an impact upon lysis of fibrinogen that's circulating. Yep. The 
uh, fact that it is a lysine analogue also means it looks a lot like another important neurotransmitter called glycine. Yep. And uh, tranexamic acid is an antagonist of glycine receptors. Yes, and so glycine uh, is a um, inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So, so when glycine uh, receptors are um, activated, it sort of calms your brain down. Mm. And uh, it's similar to GABA receptors, which is what a lot of our anaesthetic drugs work on, like propofol, midazolam and things. And um, I believe tranexamic acid also has some um, antagonism of GABA receptors. Yes. Yep. Mm. So basically, if you stop those from working, it's like uh, the opposite of an anaesthetic drug. So anaesthetic drugs put you to sleep because they're agonists. Yep. They activate the glycine and the GABA receptors, maybe the GABA more so, but... Um, and so they put you to sleep and turn off neurons. Uh, if, if you stop those receptors from working, then um, there's too much excitation in your nervous system. And so you get all the, you know, the features of an overstimulated nervous system, which is seizures um, and then you know, the cardiovascular symptoms of an overactive nervous system as well. Mm. So tachycardia, hypertension. So very neurotoxic. So tranexamic acid basically is neurotoxic and too much excitatory stimulation in your central nervous system is very neurotoxic and then that can lead to so all these um this over uh, stimulation in the nervous system can lead to problems in the other organs of the body so that you know you can get effect yeah you, know, you can get um, acute pulmonary edema from the severe hypertension and the, and the effects the poor um, cardiac function that you get with um, overstimulation and then uh, rhabdomyolysis from you know, seizures, um, causing breakdown of your muscle, and hypoxia and acidosis because you're using up so much oxygen. Uh, hypothermia. Hypothermia, so a bit like MH. So, mm. and uh, I think the mode of death. So, that's, so we haven't mentioned this yet, but um, I think it's some um, in this first paper that they um, were talking about with 21 cases. I think it was close to 50% mortality. So extremely high mortality. And the mode of death is usually related to that, things like that. So patients were dying of arrhythmias, like v, VF, yes. VT, pulmonary edema. Yep. Uh, and and it was often occurring very acutely on the first few hours. Oh, so it's pretty scary. It is pretty morbid. Uh, pretty depressing. And also imagine that you had done this spinal in, a, you know, um, in an emergency caesarean. Someone else, had perhaps maybe someone else has drawn up the drugs for you. You've done the spinal. Saying this patient has a fit and they're hypertensive, so you uh, you think they've had eclampsia, and so you just start treating them as if they've got eclampsia, and then they just get worse and worse over the next two hours, and they die. Mm. You may not even realise you've done something wrong, uh, or if or if you do eventually figure out what's happened, it could well be a bit late. Mm. And yeah, so the, so that's a sort of so that's a classic picture. So I guess now, uh, hopefully. Um, People are starting to realise that this is a possibility of, and it's, it's a thing that exists, so at least I'll keep it in the back of their mind. Um, what was the next point we want to talk about? I think that was the main thing when it comes to mechanisms and toxicity. Most of these um, case reports are intrathecal injections. So we're going to talk about, there's another paper. So Santosh Patel, who was one of the authors in that first paper, has written, um, uh, did a, did a follow-up paper which has been published in the European Journal of Anesthesiology this year, uh, earlier this year, in March, where they 
they sort of searched the literature from 2019 through to 2023, and they found another 22 cases, another 22 cases, I think. So that makes it makes it about 40 cases in total now. Uh, and he's and he's um, gone and uh, written a very uh, good description of the um, uh, of the features of these cases and the. Um, a good section on you know proposed or suggested treatments, um, but f- uh, and we will talk also. We found one case um, of in- epidural injection of tranexamic acid. So I guess um, here in Australia, in Western Australia, where we work, we we probably think maybe a little bit falsely that we probably were unlikely to do accidentally inject tranexamic acid intrathecally. Preparation of tranexamic acid we have is pretty different to bupivacaine. Um, I can't imagine it looking similar. It's a 10 mil ampule. It doesn't look anything like the spinal bupivacaine that we use. Um, <coughs> I guess you can never say never, but we're def- definitely worried that um, you know there's lots of drugs sitting around the trolley, and we have patients coming up with epidurals in which we use for anaesthesia for emergency um, obstetrics or after hours obstetrics, and we could easily accidentally get our syringes mixed up and inject that epidurally. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the case of epidural injection after we've gone through the treatment, suggested treatments for intrathecal injections. Yeah, so there's a number of um, proposed approaches to treating the um, un- patient who's been uh, poisoned with yep. um, unintentional in, um, administration of intrathecal tranexamic acid. Um, so, the first thing is um, giving no more, stopping injecting the drug, and then trying to dilute the drug within the subarachnoid space. That's proposed to be done potentially by introducing a um, intrathecal catheter. Yep. Uh, aspirating and injecting saline. So. The, one of the case reports talked about taking 10 mils of CSF off at a time yep. and administering 10 mils of replacement saline yep. up to a total of four times that volume, so 40 mils in total. Yeah. Uh, other reports talk about taking 20 mils off, 20 mils in. Um, yep. That's going to dilute... Well, that's about a quarter of the um, circulating CSF volume estimated in an adult. Um, Some people have proposed if there's a neurosurgeon available, they could potentially um, do a surgical procedure in order to um, do a laminectomy and um, incise into the theca and wash out the drug. Yep, now I think that did happen in one case mm. in uh, this re- recent paper in the European Journal on the EJA. But there's still the management of the seizures to take into consideration. So it is um, proposed in the paper that, um, you know, obviously management of the ABCs, but then stopping yeah. the fit. So drugs like a, a thiopentone coma. Yep. With, and if muscle relaxants are used, then uh, EEG monitoring. Yep. Um, in uh, an ICU situation. Yep. Um, also take into consideration the risks of uh, ongoing toxicity while the drug stays in the CSF space. Yep. So basically, um, they're talking about sort of good supportive care, but um, 
uh, I think I agree with you. So, so E, if you're intubating someone, which you probably need to do, uh, if they're paralysed, you need to make sure that you've actually uh, turned off the seizure. Mm. And so your suggestion of EEG monitoring is what's been suggested. And theoretically, um, so from, from what we read uh, in this paper from the, uh, the Neurology Journal, talking about um, the mechanism for uh, neurotoxicity, uh, and that uh, they, they recommend that... Um, Volatiles like sevoflurane and propofol are good glycine antagonists. Okay. Um, so they recommend those. Uh, um, so that's pretty familiar to all of us. Mm. Although sevoflurane is not used that often in ICU. Uh, and that perhaps um, th- traditional um, benzodiazepine therapy is not quite as good. But mm. it sounds to me like you just need to, you know, to give them some uh, well. Yeah, you know, familiar, well-used anticonvulsant mm. therapies, and you're probably going to need to use a lot and lots of different um, types of anticonvulsants. Um, and then you're going to manage the sympathetic and uh, cardiovascular problems. Yep. So, so uh, analgesia. Yep. Um, for example, with potent opioids, and then uh, antiarrhythmic drugs. Yep. Including amiodarone. That's one of the suggestions in the papers. Um, yeah, so I think if we uh, um, had a patient, I think here in, a, in, uh, in our setting, uh, we're in a hospital that doesn't have a neurosurgeon, so we would either, I think the best, so I agree, I think um, and I think the evidence, even though it's all the only observation, was that those patients that had CSF lavage or since the one or two that had some neurosurgeon who came and um, did an operation to try and wash out the... Um, the intrathecal space um, seem to do better, mm. and they. No, I don't think there were any deaths in those patients. So, obviously, not very uh, easy to do any sort of randomised studies or anything. No. But the theory behind it seems to make sense. So, get because a lot of these patients have you know the the um, tranexamic acid seems to hang around in the in the CSF for a long time. Um, it is delayed. It's delayed in the concentration. Yeah, of so the they TXA. have to. So they have done some plasma yeah, peak concentrations. They have done some pharmacokinetic mm. studies, and that was in one of these papers, which we'll, we'll put all these papers in the notes, showing that uh, when you give it intravenously, it peaks in the plasma and then you know falls away, mm. but um, it hangs around for hours longer in the CSF, and for some reason, you know, this it gets cleared a lot slower. So if you've injected into the into the CSF, it's going to hang around for for many hours. Mm. Um, you can't um, expect it to be metabolized quickly, so. So uh, it makes sense to try and remove some and minimise the the dose and the um, exposure of the central nervous system to the to that drug. Um, so yeah, I think in, in our hospital, I would probably it's pretty easy to um, put an, intra- an epidural catheter into the intrathecal space. We do it accidentally, but it's actually quite easy to do it on purpose. Done it a few times on purpose <laughs> and a couple of times accidentally. <laughs> Um, so I think that's what I would do in the, the lumbar level. Mm-hmm. And um, ju- just like you described, Graham, I'd take off 10 mils at a time and replace it with saline. Uh, it's always that risk when you're taking volume out of the CSF of um, bleeding in the dural veins. So yeah, so causing too much low pressure. can occur if the yeah. pressure gets too low. Mm. Yeah, so you, that's why I think you only want to do, you, you want to take some out, put some in, take some out, put some in, yeah. Um, I was also, we were talking about this as well, I would, I would be even 
um, there was one case where they um, they did do this and they actually put um, bupivacaine in, back into the intrathecal space. Um, I think because, you know, bupivacaine mm. turns off nerves. Yes. So it calms them all down. So uh, uh, that, that would certainly be something I would think about doing once I'd got to the point where I'm not going to do any more lavage. Maybe the last injection I would... Um, think about putting a big dose of um, mm. heavy bupivacaine in. That'll only hang around for a few hours, but it might be helpful in calming down the the overstimulation of the central nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. Be good uh, analgesia. Yeah, that's right. And by, by this stage, you know, I think first of all, you probably need to, you know, uh, ABCs. So stop this convulsion, secure the airway, give them 100% oxygen, get some, you know, control of their cardiovascular system, and then once you've done that, um, lavage things. All right. Protect their brain. Protect the brain, yeah. Mm. Um, or maybe, actually, probably, if you're the one that accidentally injected this stuff, you want your colleagues to come and do that for you because you'd be a <coughs> uh, in a bit of a bad place psychologically if you've accidentally done something like like this. Yeah, um, it's, it's only lucky that you know the vials that we use are 10 mil yes, vials. Yes, that's right. Um, sometimes they resemble um, you know saline vials or potassium chloride vials. Sometimes yep. they resemble... Um, you know, fentanyl or GTN vials. Yep. Whereas the um, preparations that we've seen in some of the images, particularly from Africa, they look so similar. The TXA in a five mil vial looks so similar to the heavy yes. um, or the hyperbaric bupivacaine point five percent. Yep. It's um, it's easier to see, and mm. you know, it's all very well to say that people shouldn't make mistakes, but if you have two drugs that look the same and you st- yeah. <laughs> in the same looking vials and you stick them in a trolley next to each other and then you ask people to do emergency or um, procedures in the middle of the night or uh, under time pressure there uh, or things that they don't f- don't do that often then yeah it's only a matter of time and if you then you ask like people to do it hundreds of thousands of times every year yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen it, it will happen yeah. um, so we will talk about that in a second um, let's talk about let's present let's just um, present the epidural case as well because that's quite interesting yes, yes. So there's a case report from uh, published in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia in uh, September 21. Administration accidentale d'acid tranexamique. <laughs> I'm just reading the French part. Um, so I really like this journal because it has French and English. We, oui. <laughs> unlike the the uh, the French journal of anesthesia, I can't remember what it's called. They it's only all have it in English. English. I know. <laughs> so good on you, Canada. Um, so this. By so the um, the Marseille. <laughs> yeah. So this <laughs> this patient was undergoing um, surgery for um, a hemi hepatectomy. So they had colorectal cancer, and uh, they had metastases in their liver, and they had a thoracic epidural placed, and they were asleep, and uh, so they had a number of infusions running in uh, intravenously, and um, also an epidural infusion that needed starting and someone accidentally connected up this infusion of tranexamic acid which was planned to be administered as a um, sort of slow IV bolus uh, accidentally hooked it up to the um, epidural catheter and it gave, it looks like 700 milligrams, so someone recognised before the whole ampule had gone in Um, and when they realised this uh, sorry, 500 milligrams was, was noticed when the resident and the anesthesiologist disconnected it so they did a quick. Uh, they they were they were aware that it's um, of these intrathecal cases, uh, and so they knew that it's toxic neuraxially. 
I did a quick consult with some other anesthesiologists and looked at um, literature uh, on the internet and couldn't find any other epidural case reports, so they weren't sure exactly what to do. So they tried to aspirate fluid from the epidural catheter. They couldn't get anything out. So then they just got um, some preservative-free saline and started an epidural lavage. So they gave 20 ml bolus of saline over five minutes and then another two additional 20 ml boluses over the next 60 minutes for a total of 60 mls in the first hour. And then they ran an infusion of saline at 20 mls an hour for the next 48 hours. Um, and throughout this t- period of time, the patient's clinical picture and hemodynamics were completely unremarkable and there was no evidence of motor seizure activity or myoclonus or any um, any other problems, although the patient was under sevoflurane-general anesthesia and had, was paralysed. But the EEG uh, monitor was consistent with sort of moderate to deep general anesthesia, no seizures. And they were cardiovascular, there's no signs of sympathetic overactivation or, or um, arrhythmias, etc. And so, um, yeah, so then after a after uh, I think it was over an hour or two and they realised that the patient was still pretty stable they actually decided to proceed with the surgery because the patient they thought needed the surgery and then at the end of the surgery after about four hours they were extubated in, in the operating room and they were stable and there was no signs of neurological problems no seizures they went to PACU then they went to um, they got loaded with liver liver teracetum you know anticonvulsant yes, Kepra Kepra and then they went to ICU for um a couple of days and, and then they stopped the epidural saline infusion and basically there was no there was no obvious sequelae are they saying the solution to pollution is dilution <laughs> <laughs> yes I think that's what they're saying so obviously this is the one so it's six months three to six months and nine months after the event the patient's had no neurological problems so it looks like there was no neurological sequelae from this 500 milligram bolus of epidural tranexamic acid mm. uh, in a patient who was pretty aggressively treated with lavage to dilute it and presumably you know the epidural I don't know how lipid soluble tranexamic acid is I suspect it's not that great it looks water soluble so, doesn't so it so it probably doesn't cross the blood brain barrier that um, chemical composition yeah so mm. so it, sound, it seems like it didn't really get into the CNS very well from the epidural space luckily mm. and it was diluted in um uh, you know, yeah. I so mean, I just wonder whether so if they couldn't aspirate the catheter, there'd be a mill in the catheter. You'd think maybe you could pull it out and... Yeah, I don't know. But then you'd have to place another one, which uh, wouldn't be easy if the patient started to yeah. have seizures. So yeah. it's a tricky situation You could probably take, find yourself take the filter off because that would have a lot of the, yes. the fluid. Yes. Uh, maybe replace the filter. Filter, yeah. That would get rid of the tranexamic acid that's in the filter, yeah. Mm. Okay, so anyway, that's, that one's... So that's good yeah, to I know. Think, I think that we're at risk of th- those kind of events. That sort of event could definitely occur mm. in, uh, in Australia, and I'm sure any other, d- any yeah. part of the world that uses epidural catheters for obstetric anesthesia. Yes. Um, so, so good to be aware of what they did, and, mm. and the fact that that it seemed to be, or reassuring that what they did seemed to um, lead to a reasonably good outcome. Still, not something that we will, a mistake we want to make. No. All right, I think we've covered just about everything. Um, we didn't really talk about um, drug errors. Some people who are listening to this may not be aware that we're sort of used to the fact that it's part of anesthesia. I, I sort of think of drug errors as part of, pra- part of our practice, which sounds terrible, but it's just we, if, when you give like 100 drugs a day for a whole for four years, <laughs> you know that yep. drug errors occur. 
uh, even though we spend a lot of time talking about how to prevent drug errors and um, uh, you know we think about it a lot as part of our practice mm. we realize that just telling people not to do it is not in any way likely to be useful or, <laughs> or to no. prevent it I mean they, they make so recommendations of having yeah. a second person check yeah so and I, think I think that's a really really useful yep. um, technique yep so so um, yeah. what are the keys the key things that we should do when we're performing your axial anesthesia yeah so to, to try and prevent this yeah so limit the amount of drugs that are available only yep. have the drugs that you intend to use yep. of, um, readily available in that workspace yep we have that because we separate our um, medications for administration yep. very very well yep in our organization but it's not the case everywhere Yep. And then uh, within other um, you know, anaesthetic trolley drug storage spaces, try your best not to have toxic substances that can be um, administered in error available easily. Yeah, that's right. So there's one, one suggestion that this came up at the SIG meeting, I think, is that maybe we shouldn't store tranexamic acid in theatre on the anaesthetic trolley. It should be like one of those drugs where if you want it, you have to ask an assistant to go down to the drug room or another room, another another. Tr- place in the theatre complex to go and get it mm. so it's just not stored in the same place as all the other drugs yeah, like our experience mm-hmm. last week where we had uh, thypentone vial with a yellow cap right next to the antibiotic with the yellow yes, cap uh, i know I, I sent that around yeah yeah um that doesn't guarantee anything though because what because if someone who's stocking the trolleys accidentally mm. uh stocks the um drawer with uh, tranexamic acid instead of something else um so um, the other thing is, uh, so when you're giving, well, when you're drawing up drugs that you're going to put down the neuraxium, yeah, so, so I know in our practice, in um, uh, when it comes to intrathecal or spinal drugs, we you, we always sort of Check. look at the ampule and two people who are, the person who is opening the ampule and the person who's drawing it up read it out to yes. each other. Yes, So we read out what it is and we read out the, the expiry date. I find that particularly helpful after that is hours really, in that is really, really situations. Yeah. It's really, really important that if you're ever... In an emergency situation, where you're doing spinal anaesthesia, you always slow down and do that. Like just forget, mm. forget about all the other people's, everyone Neat. else, everyone else's um, anxiety and mm. want desire for you to go fast. That is not something to cut down. Uh, yes, to um, cut corners on. Um, yeah, we don't usually do that for epidural drugs, though, do we? No, uh, we have syringes of stuff we do. lying around on the trolley, and we <laughs> we usually. I mean, I try my hardest to, to follow the our college's guidelines in having two separate workspace, a workspace for the drugs that are intended for intravenous use yep. and a workspace for the drugs that are intended for the epidural or yeah. other routes. Yeah. Yep. And then finally, um, this is something that um, they talked about and they have, they have investigated, is like just not making, um, the, you know, the manufacturers of these drugs should make them in completely different looking ampules. Yes. But they, they, they highlighted the fact that like... The, um, one jurisdiction, India, was one that they looked at. There was like 12 manufacturers of tranexamic acid and 12 manufacturers of um, heavy bupivacaine. So there's like, I'm oh sorry, six manufacturers of heavy bupivacaine, all the other way around, but it was 18 different drug manufacturers. Yes. Uh, and just there's no, there's no there's guidance no, no or, consensus. or consensus or guidelines for them on how to package or... Um, um, 
you know, present their drugs uh, and, and there's no, you know, so but base, but maybe back at an industry level we should be looking at this as an issue, not, not just for this drug but for all drugs, you know, uh, to avoiding, um, you know, avoiding drugs uh, coming packaged in similar looking presentations, especially high risk drugs. Yes. Oh, that's been a really serious and it has deep, deep, deep joke. Yeah, I'll tell you about an, uh, an anecdote. This is a, a true story. So in America, there was this guy who was um, obsessed with trains, and he anyway he stole a train and he and uh, he broke in and stole the train and he was driving it, and of course he didn't know what he was doing, so it crashed and, and everyone on board died. And the police caught him, and they they <coughs> sent him to prison. And there was a there was a trial, and they sentenced him to death for for a murder. And he <coughs> he was sentenced to the electric chair. Before he went to the electric chair, they said, "What would you like for your last meal?" And he said, "I want a single peeled banana." And so he, they gave him his peeled banana, and they put him in the electric chair, and uh, they flew, flicked the switch, and he didn't die. So they had to let him go. You know, double jeopardy. You're not allowed mm-hmm. to prosecute someone for the same thing again. He got out. First thing he did, he's obsessed. He went and stole the train. He drove it off the tracks, crashed. Multiple door, multiple people died. He got sentenced again. He sentenced to the electric chair. It was a pretty quick um, yeah. court case because he'd been through it all before. He pleaded guilty. They said, "What do you want for your last meal?" He said, "Banana." He had a banana. They flicked the switch on the chair. And he didn't die. So they had to let him go again. And anyway, he, did it again. <laughs> he broke out. A couple of days later, he stole a train, killed some more people. So they sentenced him to death. And they said, what do you want for your last meal? And he said, a banana. And they said, no, nah, no way. We've, been, we've seen this before. So they gave him a steak and chips. And then they put him in a electric chair, flicked the switch, and he didn't die. And the, the prison superintendent said, did you give him a banana? And they said, no, we gave him a steak and chips. Turns out it wasn't the banana. He was just a really poor conductor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that took a really long time. Yeah, but it was very good. <laughs> oh. All right. Thanks, Roger. Okay. All right, well, we have to do another podcast sometime. Okay, thanks, Graham. Very good. Thank you. <laughs>